So the case that we're going to discuss today is a case that I have called a case of uh, not poking the bear because it's um, a good uh, example of how diagnostic testing can potentially lead to harm in patients. So this case starts off with a family doctor referring a patient to a gastroenterology office. And he asks the gastroenterologist to see this healthy 18-year-old male regarding a history of GI bleeding. On the history of presenting illness, the gastroenterologist finds out that this is a healthy, active male who experiences non-painful, intermittent, bright red blood per rectum. And the patient says that this, quote, turns the whole toilet bowl red, and it's never mixed with any stool. He says he has no other symptoms associated with this, and he has normal stools between episodes. He has no abdominal pain associated with the events either. The patient is not taking any medications, and he has an entirely unremarkable family history, specifically no history of GI diseases in the family or colon cancer. On social history, you find out that he lives with his parents, he has no siblings, he's attending school in the 12th grade, and he's planning to go to university next year. He denies any alcohol use, cigarette use, or drug use. In the gastroenterologist's office, he is seen about uh, three or four months after his last episode of GI bleeding. And although his GI bleeding has totally resolved, the gastroenterologist advises him to undergo a colonoscopy to rule out a sinister cause of his presumed lower GI bleed. And at that point, they're particularly wanting to make sure he didn't have something like a familial uh, syndrome that would predispose him to early colon cancer, although he had no constitutional symptoms and was feeling fine otherwise. So he undergoes a colonoscopy all the way up until the terminal ileum. And uh, this is described as being an entirely normal colonoscopy. And the diagnosis at that time that was considered was either hemorrhoidal bleeding or an anal fissure. I think what's very interesting about this colonoscopy report is that this 18-year-old gentleman actually required no anesthesia whatsoever for a colonoscopy all the way up until the terminal ileum. And it is a testament to how uh, tough a guy he actually is. And later on in the case, he withstands a lot of other discomfort uh, throughout uh, his um, hospitalization and uh, uh, medical condition. Is it too early to ask questions? No, please do. Okay. When he was having the bleeding, mm -hmm. did he have a CBC ever? Uh, he did have a CBC back when he was 18. The case actually goes quite forward in time, so it's hard to get all the records back from when he was 18 years old, but he did have some mild uh, anemia at that time. Hemoglobin's okay. dropping into the 120 range. Okay, so definitely support this was actually GI bleeding. Yeah. What, what was the alternative diagnosis that you would consider? Like some people eat a lot of beets, oh, I see. and yeah. they poop out something that looks like blood that is not actually blood. Yeah. And so that's really uncommon, but like, it would, I would hate to send this person for a million tests for having eaten too many beets. I guess the other the other question is like, if the bleeding was, if this all was totally painless, then anal fissure for me is also not really on the differential diagnosis. And hemorrhoids, if he didn't have any hemorrhoids at the time of the colonoscopy, and if he had no real reason to have hemorrhoids back however many months ago, I'm just, you can throw out anything in the, in the body of a colonoscopy report, but to me, like, I don't know. I, I don't buy either of those. Would you have proceeded to colonoscopy in this gentleman at this point? 18 years old, asymptomatic, recurrent episodes of bright red blood per rectum? Yeah. Uh, some kind of investigation of uh, large bowel, mostly because, like, to me, no 18-year-old should have unexplained rectal bleeding. And some of the things that cause rectal bleeding do go away and come back, even when they're dangerous things. 
So I, I would have pursued, would you have pursued? Yeah, I think I, I would have. Um, yeah, totally. Would you would you suggest sigmoidoscopy, given the fact that it's bright red blood, or would you do the whole colon? The whole colon. The whole colon. Sigmoidoscopy is a great screening test, mm-hmm. like semi-population or targeted screening test for someone for colon, for colon cancer, but not in this indication. I mean, in the spectrum of, of 18-year-olds to have just blood in the, in the toilet, abnormal. So the first thing that I was thinking, which was, I'm sure the first thing that everyone else here was thinking, was inflammatory bowel disease. But again, in the absence of abdominal pain, mucus, constitutional symptoms, and to go away, to have a pretty dramatic thing, and then to go away for four months, I don't know. And just blood, right? There's no yeah. stool, there's no diarrhea, there's just blood. How about if you did a physical exam and found at this point that he had some hemorrhoids on a DRE? Would you still proceed to doing a full colonoscopy? No. Yes. This this doesn't explain. Um, I think he doesn't have, you know, his, he doesn't describe the toilet paper. He doesn't describe feeling of hemorrhoids, and I, th- I think I would. Let's press forward with the case a little bit, and we'll take another break and discuss um, uh, his progress. So at this point, the years actually pass by, and he does very well over this time. He never receives a formal diagnosis, um, but the differential diagnosis continues to be probable hemorrhoidal bleeding that never recurred. So he goes to university, he enjoys a normal, basically uh, early adulthood, uh, with no recurrence of his bleeding, he's active, he continues to have no constitutional symptoms, and he actually says uh, to his family doctor that he, quote, forgot all about it. Um, he really actually has to be reminded of the fact that he went underwent a colonoscopy. But then, about four or five years later, at the age of 22, he represents to hospital, and this is in the context of what appears to be a massive lower GI bleed. And he actually ends up in a peripheral center. And he's seen by the emergency doctor at that time. And the emergency doctor immediately initiates uh, blood transfusion. He gets two units of packed red blood cells that are unmatched upon entering the door because his uh, blood pressure is uh, uh, quite soft. And uh, he's hemodynamically stabilized with this intervention. And he feels quite well after a few hours. His hemoglobin uh, nadir is only about 105, but that is measured while he's getting transfused. Um, he was pre-syncopal when he came in the hospital, and actually within a few hours, he's up walking around in the emergency department, tells the eMERGE doc that he feels completely fine uh, and that he wants to go home. And one of the themes that comes up in this case repeatedly is this is a gentleman who resuscitates very well. So he gets, he gets a bleed, he feels very unwell, and then as soon as he gets a little bit of um, a blood product, he goes back to feeling completely fine and wants to go home. It's very dramatic. So IBD is, is now kind of off my list. Like, yeah, this doesn't sound like any other, any other IBD case that I've ever heard of. Now, like, I mean, a couple of new thoughts are emerging, but IBD is dropping on the list. And what I'd like all of us to think about and our listeners to think about is what they would do at this point with this patient. So given the story that you have up until this point, I'm going to press forward a little bit with the case right now so that we can um, do this in a timely manner, but I think that uh, it's important to sort of consider what your approach would be at this point. So somewhat surprisingly, the Mm. emergency doctor actually discharges him home at the patient's request. And the plan at that point is to have expedited GI follow-up. So the, the referral is sent to the gastroenterologist's office and the patient is told that the office will call him. Well, two days go by while he's at home, and he continues to experience intermittent bright red blood per rectum, up to three to four times per day. And he gets no phone call from the gastroenterologist's office at all. So he goes and calls the receptionist at the office, and she actually tells him that it's going to take months for him to get an outpatient colonoscopy, 
and that instead he should just quote unquote sit tight. Uh, and the patient himself thought that this was quite a funny pun, um, but uh, that was actually the plan at that point. Like really tight. Yeah. Clench yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tight. Clench tight. Okay, that's obviously a failure of the of the system. Yeah, I think this this is Svetropkov here. I think what's interesting, I mean, is that we kind of have the story, but when this patient represented at age 22 with recurrent GI bleeding, he carried with him, you know, a diagnosis of likely hemorrhoids with a normal coronoscopy, and he'd been well for several years. So I think Matt might have biased the thinking when this episode occurred again and that, okay, this is probably just hemorrhoidal. Now, I think it's really, in, in my understanding of hemorrhoidal bleeding, you wouldn't see such a significant hemodynamic change in, in anemia resulting. So this patient obviously had a big bleed, but the combination of the previous history of normal C-scope and possible hemorrhoid diagnosis, plus how well he resuscitated and appeared and the patient's own desire to go home might have pushed that emergency physician to make that decision that he did. So, Paul, have you ever seen hemorrhoidal bleeding um, that causes hemodynamic instability? No, and it's, um, it's unclear how severe the bleeding was I think uh, when he was 18, I think at this point the, the bleed does not sound like a like a hemorrhoidal bleed. If you assume that his baseline hemoglobin is like, let's say minimum 140, and he bleeds himself down to 100 at least, that's like, that's very dramatic. That's, and, and so, and the decision to discharge home is like, I wasn't there, right? yeah. who, who would I be to judge that decision? But that's it is a patient for whom I would say like, okay, well, I need actually expedited follow-up which doesn't just involve me sending a fax to the GI physician's office. It involves me probably picking up the phone mm-hmm. and saying, like, listen, I have this guy. He's okay. I think he can probably go, but he needs to be seen this week. Mm-hmm. And any, any reasonable gastroenterologist in this city would say, like, okay, I'll see him tomorrow. But how many times would you come into emergency and have uncrossed blood? Right? I mean, so he's hemodynamically so yeah. unstable, first recognized. Yeah. So we go from emergency resuscitation life-saving resuscitation to discharge home and see a gastroenterologist sometime. I mean, somehow there's a disconnect with the person. So even though we weren't there, even though the patient had this background history, even though he says he wants to go home, at the, in, you know, two hours ago, you were, you were saving his life, and now you're talking about having an intermittent conversation with somebody at some time and go home and wait for a phone call. That doesn't seem to be, that's mm-hmm. not great logic. Without an explanation for why he was right. so deathly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the first consultant, you might have expected not to be an outpatient gastroenterologist, but a surgeon. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so something, so the person making the decision somehow forgets the first part. Yeah. And then concentrates on the last part, but doesn't really revisit that, that decision. We'll press forward. I think the other thing that's worth considering is whether this gentleman was treated differently because he's 22 years old versus the fact that he's 80 years old. So he resuscitates very well, and that's very common in young people. And so I think it's always important to consider that. So he's at home and still waiting to hear from the gastroenterologist. And he's actually fine with the plan that the receptionist has told him. But his parents are very unsatisfied with this, uh, uh, with this plan to have a colonoscopy in a few months. So they actually take an hour-long taxi ride together towards a tertiary care hospital so that he can get expedited follow-up. And all three of them are sitting in the back seat. And he tells me that he was really sitting tight to try and make sure he didn't have a big GI bleed in the cab. And actually upon stepping out of the cab when he arrived in the emergency department, he has a syncopal episode. But this is a really tough guy. And when he's actually seeing the emergency department, he says, I'm still perfectly fine. I'm just having the symptoms of anemia. 
So he's actually gone around the internet about what the manifestations of GI bleed are, and he figures that this is probably a fairly normal response and nothing to worry about. So he gets a physical examination from internal medicine when he arrives in the emergency department, mm -hmm. and he's found to have a normal blood pressure at 95 over 50. I'm not sure what his baseline blood pressure is. His heart rate is 120. His respiratory rate is 12. His oxygen saturation is normal, and his temperature is also normal. He's found to have a normal cardiovascular exam, other than the fact that he has a very low uh, JVP, and his respiratory exam is also normal. He has a full abdominal exam that shows a, non, a soft, non-tender abdomen, and there's no evidence of groin lymphadenopathy. And someone does a DRE, which shows a large volume of bright red blood. I ask if anything else would be done at this point, um, and I think what's interesting is that sometimes our reflex request when somebody has a GI bleed is to check their orthostatic vitals, because a lot of the literature comes from uh, some data about that. And so somebody actually asks him to stand up to check his blood pressure to see if it drops, and he actually has another syncopal episode in the trauma bay. So it's positive then. <laughs> yes. Very positive orthostatic vitals. Probably unnecessary given the history that we collected when he came out of the cab. And he's already tachycardic. Yes. You know. And he's hypotensive and tachycardic. That would not be it's a... like 40% blood loss. Yeah. <laughs> with, with a bunch of blood in his yeah. rectum. Yeah. Yes. So... I think it's a test that we might forego. Yeah. yeah. He has a number of investigations done when he arrives, and the most significant of which is that his hemoglobin is now 71. And as Dr. Voyer pointed out, this is a gentleman who probably has a baseline hemoglobin of 150, maybe just a week ago. So probably lost about half of his blood volume. His, um, his white blood cell count is normal. His platelets are slightly low at 149, and his serum electrolytes are all normal. If you go back and check his previous creatinine, his baseline creatinines are all above 120 with GFRs, sorry, his baseline GFRs are all above 120 with creatinines in the 50s. He's a relatively small guy, so this is actually an acute kidney injury for him with a GFR of 81. He also has a normal urea at 2.3. His liver enzymes are all normal and he has normal coagulation factors. His ECG shows that he has sinus tachycardia. That normal urea, do you find that helpful in this situation? Um, no, so I, I recognize the the question, but no, I, I wouldn't find it helpful. And and this is a gentleman who's actually been bleeding for a few days probably. Would you not expect the urea to be at least a little bit abnormal? I, I guess, but there's so many other factors that, that can affect it, and especially in him, I'm, I'm not sure how much weight I put on it, so it wouldn't be, it, it wouldn't guide me one way or the other. For, for me, I see the normal urea, and all it's saying to me is that, like, Yes, he's got blood in his gut. We already know that he's got blood in his gut. But I think, to me, yeah, it biases me to think. I already thought this anyway, but it biases me more towards thinking that this blood is coming from the lower GI tract than from the upper right. GI tract. What about you? I, I think I had similar thoughts. I mean, I think if this patient, what we're talking about now, is this low, brisk lower GI bleed, really an upper GI bleed. Um, I think the absence of hematemesis and, and also the normal urea biased me to to think more of a lower GI tract source, like a colonic source. But I appreciate that that you'd normally urea might not be a perfect test. And Paul, you would as well. Well, I think I do put some weight on it because I think if the urea was markedly elevated relative to his creatinine, uh, I would think th that could be evidence that this may not be what a lower GI bleed as as we suspected. But it's it's tough to say. And of course, if he has a an acute kidney injury, the urea would be expected to rise if he's if he's intravascularly dry as well. So um, I guess the issue is not the discussion that we've heard, but the thing is the decision-making using this piece of information would therefore I not do an upper GI evaluation. So it wouldn't it wouldn't dissuade me from doing an upper GI evaluation. No, 
Right. So it's one more piece of information, but doesn't cross the threshold yeah. of actually changing what you'll do for yeah. it. Yeah. Although, although it's for me, the next test anyway wasn't going to be an upper GI scope. Okay. Scope. All right. So it's it's not made any impact on that. Okay. So I'm going to come back to that, Dr. Hoy. I'm going to ask you roughly what you feel your differential diagnosis is at this time and what investigations you would want to pursue. So he is resuscitating the emergency department, which I think everybody uh, would agree with as a next step. So he gets three units of packed red blood cells, some IV fluids, and his heart rate and blood pressure normalize with that. And he's admitted to the clinical teaching unit, which is an internal medicine service uh, on the ward. How do you feel about the decision to admit to CTU? Um, well, I'm biased a little bit in in his presentation, and uh, I think it's fine. I think, first of all, I think he needs hospitalization. I think we all agree on that. The question is where he should be uh, admitted. I think, I, given our circumstances, I think it's an appropriate admission to CTU. Do you suggest, Dr. Boy, that he might have been appropriate for a surgical admission? Or? I, I, I feel like there's a surgical diagnosis coming our way. Um, I also feel like he'd be a good sort of more intense observation patient, like an HAU or right. ICU okay. person, while this kind of sorts itself out. Okay, that's actually a really good thought. It's not that I wouldn't involve a surgeon, but recognizing that the surgical presence on the wards is less than our presence on the wards. Um, I think uh, given his circumstance, I would be more comfortable having him on a medical service. I, I don't mean going to the surgical ward, I mean going to the operating room. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a good segue. So what is your differential diagnosis at this point? Just me? Yeah. So um, I, I feel like there's blood in the lower GI tract, like blood spurting from something in the lower GI tract. Given his age and the intermittent nature of the bleeding, I think like a Meckel's diverticulum is on my list for sure. Uh, maybe the highest thing on my list. Okay. Whether he has like an angiodysplastic lesion somewhere in the small bowel or something, or a vascular malformation in the small bowel, those are I think also fairly likely. But the the commoner thing, like when at the outset of this case, I thought IBD was the most likely. Mm-hmm. We know that he has no diverticular disease and that that's really uncommon in this age group anyway. Malignancy, I thought, was like pretty unlikely at the outset, and he's got no other red flags to suggest he's got a malignancy. An infectious colitis or anything like that, the thing when he was 17 or 18 would have been unrelated, and now he's not presenting with any other signs or symptoms of infection. So, yeah, like I guess ordered, I'm interested in Meckel's, some other vascular malformation, um, and angiodysplasia, I guess. You know, his family history, I am, like, we often say, like, the family history is negative. I'd want to know more about his family history. Like, we don't, yeah. we don't know everything there. But And to me, when I, when I hear the story, to me, this is blood vessel bleeding. This is not, it just happens to be in the gastrointestinal tract, but this is blood vessel bleeding. There's nothing else that would give you this type of profound blood loss in the absence of other symptoms. So somehow there's a connection between a blood vessel and the GI tract. Where it is, I don't know. Why it is, I don't know. But that's what, what this is pinging for me is like is pattern recognition. Like yeah. I've seen a couple cases of young people bleed like crazy intermittently from Meckel's diverticulum. Right. And so that's why that's the first place that I'm going. I, you know, from an epidemiologic standpoint, if you took all the patients who were like this that went to the hospital, I don't know what is actually the most likely thing. But but what part of Meckel's bleeds? I mean, what is it that's bleeding in? 
they erode it into a vessel if they're yeah. bleeding that much. Yeah. So it's blood vessel bleeding. That's so whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever the pathology is, you can't you can't have this much blood with normal coags and no other problem without having a blood vessel yeah. involved someplace. Yeah. That's the same pathophysiology kind of as diverticulosis. Yeah. You can have very dramatic bleeds. Yeah. Angiodysplasia can have very dramatic bleeds that then go away. Um, you know, something like a dulafoy in the proximal small bowel or in the stomach, that I'd expect him to throw up some blood at some point. That's a like that's a typical example of a, of a bad vascular bleed, but I would have expected him to. And I, I've seen a bleed like this in in an aortic colonic yeah. or aortic enteric fistula where they just suddenly bleed, right? But so my point is simply that you need to have a blood vessel in pouring into the GI mm -hmm. tract someplace. Probably arterial. Yeah. And aeroenteric fistula is also, for me, that's a disease of older people who have got something wrong with their aorta. Totally. Know? So we're going to press forward. And I'm going to tell you that he got a GI consult. So Dr. Boya, you suggested calling a surgeon first. What would you ask the surgeon to do? I, I would have asked, I mean, once we stabilized him with blood products, I would have gotten a Meckel scan. That would have been the first thing that I did. Interesting. And then... Um, and then go from there, mm -hmm. probably calling a surgeon if that was positive. Just the, the colonoscopy, if he's had, like he had a, he has his colon interrogated four years ago mm -hmm. and it was completely normal. We're not looking for, I guess, I, no, sorry, I'll re retract that. I think the reason that the colonoscopy, I don't think is going to be that helpful right now is because his colon's full of blood. They're going to say like, yeah, it was blood in there. Like all there was was blood, blood everywhere. And so I don't know if it's going to be that helpful. Mm -hmm. And none of the, things that I'm thinking about can be fixed with a colonoscope. So he, I think, one of the, the mistakes that was perhaps made in this case is they actually resuscitated him overnight and the recurrent theme is that he actually stops bleeding. He, he bleeds quite dramatically and he actually stops bleeding quite dramatically. And so he actually doesn't get the colonoscopy until like 24 hours later because he's in the emergency department in the evening. Um, and so when he gets the colonoscopy, I think we're all relatively unsurprised that it's a completely normal colonoscopy. So the next thing that I'd like to ask is what other people would do next. Dr. Voye has suggested maybe a Meckel scan. Any other options in this situation? I think the Meckel scan is a great idea. I think other options would be, I mean, we, we presume that he's, his bleeding has resolved, but perhaps he's got slow ongoing bleeding. So another imaging study to try to localize that source of bleeding might be reasonable, such as a red blood cell scan or an angiogram. Would you do that, Paul? I think at this point, I would go on to CTA to see if, if there's if we can localize the source. So I have another question for you, Dr. Hoye. What do you think the likelihood is that he's actually getting having an upper GI bleed? Given that his colonoscopy is totally negative, is it possible that this is coming from the proximal duodenum or the stomach? It's possible, yeah. How likely do you think it is? Mm, so the lesion would probably be something like a dulafoy or an angiodysplastic lesion. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's. A, I don't. I can't. I don't think I can give you a number, but it's probably above my threshold to investigate. Um, so I would. I would investigate. So then you would do a colon, uh, sorry, an upper endoscopy next, or would you do a Meckel scan, or would you just do both? I think I would start with a Meckel. Mm -hmm. He's stable. He's stable now. He's actually doesn't seem to be actively bleeding. His hemoglobin has stabilized over the last 24 hours. I would start with a Meckel scan. Yeah. And if that was negative, I would the next test for me, rather than a CTA or a tag red cell scan, would be an upper endoscopy. Okay. With push if they can, like if they can go have a pretty good deep look. So I wanted to present here very briefly some guidelines. So this is the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy. It presents some guidelines for the management of lower GI bleeding. 
And so if you actually look at this algorithm, he falls under the severe hematochesia uh, section of the algorithm. The other parts are occult bleeding, Molina, and scant intermittent hematochesia. So we're going to go down the algorithm for severe hematochesia and these guidelines. And what they actually recommend is in the setting of a massive GI bleed, which is what he's having, is actually the first thing, as Dr. Voyer has suggested, is to get a surgical consult. Because most likely in these situations, the fix is going to be surgical. So they recommend doing this early. Then they recommend the next test being an angiography, tagged red blood cell scan, um, or some other functional test to actually see an active extravasation from a vessel. Then they recommend uh, either from there going to the refractory bleeding algorithm, which is straight to surgery, or they say if you can successfully embolize it, just observe them. What I think is very interesting from these guidelines is one thing we don't commonly do anymore but was always classically done was to consider putting a nasogastric tube down irrigating the stomach with some saline or some water and then sucking back up to see if you've got any blood. That might be a, a cheap and easy way to actually rule out an upper GI bleed rather than subjecting him to sedation and other scope. Well, I wonder about this guideline when they're talking about massive bleeding, whether this is referring to a situation where it's ongoing refractory bleeding. And in this patient, the bleeding seems to stop. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that changes how we might approach this patient. For example, if you don't have ongoing bleeding, would these studies necessarily pick up that bleeding source? And going down the algorithm further, it's kind of going towards embolization or, or observation, which is an endpoint where you can't stop the bleeding. But in this case, it's stopping. So it's a bit of an interesting case in that way, I think. I guess my, my other comments about this, this I'm, I'm guessing that these guidelines aren't there for all comers, you know? And so if the patient is under the age of 25, like there's no mention of Michael reticulum in here, and and so he's like he's almost pediatric. This guy, um, mm -hmm. so that's I, I think he's a little bit different in that sense. I think that's always a limitation with guidelines, is most of these are expert opinion and based on the most common populations you see. And this gentleman certainly falls into probably a slightly different population than most internists see. Um, so I went to the literature to try to figure out actually what is the incidence of patients who are having a presumed massive lower GI bleed, how often are they actually having a brisk upper GI bleed? And there's actually some interesting literature about it, and I'm going to present an article from the American uh, Journal of Emergency Medicine published in 2007 by Byers et al. And this is a, a paper entitled The Incidence of Occult Upper Gastrointestinal Bleeding in Patients Presenting to the ED with Hematochesia. And what they actually did was a prospective study. It's small. 135 patients were uh, consented. All of them had hematochesia, and what they did was they did the routine care you would do for any patient with hematochesia, but they also put down a nasogastric tube and did a lavage and wanted to see how many of these patients actually are having a true upper GI bleed. And what they found from this in their cohort is that 9.6% of patients with hematochesia had a positive NG lavage. Um, so based on the study, we can hypothesize that perhaps someone in this situation has about a 1 in 10 chance of actually having an upper GI bleed, which I think is an interesting statistic. You know, I'm not that old, but in my residency, you could not get the gastroenterologist to come and see the patient if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't lavaged the stomach. Mm -hmm. um, and here, I've never seen it done. No, I, and I, I think it used to be done, but I don't. I can't recall the last time that we've done this. Um, so this would mean roughly 1 in 10 patients who are coming with hematochesia. Right. If you're not interrogating the upper GI tract early, you may be missing an upper GI bleed. It's true. I mean, but by maybe Thomas can tell us the strict definition of hematochesia, and does it apply to this person? So I did a little bit of reading. So the definition of hematochesia is usually that it has to be mixed with stool, and this person is actually experiencing bright red blood per rectum with no stool. 
And so some of the literature would suggest that it should be termed something else, and one of the terms that people have suggested is rectoragia, uh, which I think is uh, And I haven't heard that term before. Neither have I. Yeah. So it's, it's, maybe there's some aspects of this trial that don't apply to the patient that we're seeing in front of us, but I think we always, in our differential diagnosis for, for bright red blood parectum, on one side we say probably lower GI, but we always say, you know, rule out the small possibility that this could be a brisk upper GI bleed. And this study gives us some context, I think. But, uh, but on the other hand, in this, it really doesn't apply as well to this patient because we already know his colon, at least we can think his colon is normal, mm-hmm. and he's bleeding. So I don't, I'm not sure that anybody would put an NG tube down first before doing, I mean, you would go, that wouldn't stop you from doing an upper GI endoscopy, so now he's had two procedures. Mm-hmm. So at this point, the gastroenterology service um, signs off of the case. because Have they done an upper GI scope? No. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. They said it's, it's non-gastrointestinal bleeding? So they said it's non-upper GI source. The story is much more consistent with a lower GI source, and that since the colonoscopy is negative, they don't need to be involved anymore. Just order the imaging test. This is very reminiscent of other cases Dr. Voye and I have shared, uh, where the service involved seems to, I'm not certain lose interest, but... I'm they divest sure. themselves. They divest themselves. I think that's a nice way of putting it. They become uninvolved. They electively withdraw. I think it's interesting because... It's service, almost, service interrupt us, yes. I think is what, <laughs> they is performed, what I would call it. They performed the procedure that they could perform, and now that that procedure was negative, they yeah. have suggested that it now belongs to radiology. Yeah. Um, so we can agree or disagree with that as being an approach in this case, but that is what was done. Now, to be fair, we did say early on that we thought probably surgery would be the fix for what we, we think is going on ultimately. So maybe it's appropriate for them to say, you know, call us if, if that's... Not how it pans out. I'm not sure we want to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) So he's planned to undergo either a CT or an MR enterography the following day to investigate the small bowel. So they considered the diagnosis of Meckel's, but also maybe he has some other GI source within the small bowel. But then that evening... It's worrisome because jagglies happen at night. (laughs) So All jagglies happen. That is an excellent segue because that evening he has another massive episode of bright red blood per rectum. So unfortunately... Or fortunately, I suppose, he's resuscitated by the on-call clinical associate overnight. So he's given blood again, um, and he actually is hemodynamically stabilized by the morning. The CA called the radiologist to consider coming in to do an angiogram at that point, but the radiologist actually said, well, if you can resuscitate him, we don't need to come in. What do you guys think of that? It's up to everyone else here. I mean, in my experience, the issue is that this always happens, um, and the only time you can make this diagnosis is, like, any of these vascular diagnoses is when the patient's actually bleeding. Patients only bleed at night. Radiologists are only here during the day. It's a real... Actually not. Radiologists are here at night now. But to Uh, do this procedure? uh, Well, they have someone in-house now in some institutions 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know. But inter- an interventionist? That's that I don't know. So one of the things I think is important to get from this is that when you're actually making that phone call overnight, are you calling the radiologist for therapeutic support or are you calling them for diagnostic support? And that's a very important thing, I think, to communicate overnight. But I think equally so is that for us as the physicians looking after him, we would need to coordinate, as Dr. Voye says, predictably this is going to happen at night. So we ourselves should have a plan about what happens if he bleeds and communicate that plan to the people that are going to be present 
so that we're not just not to demean resuscitation, but we're not just resuscitating and getting it back to the same spot ne the next day. I think one question is, is this a therapeutic or a diagnostic intervention? Mm -hmm. So in terms of therapeutics appropriately, the radiologist might say resuscitate the patient, and if that's unsuccessful, then we'll intervene. But diagnostically, as Dr. Boy pointed out, you need to probably just do a study while the patient's bleeding. Yeah. I wonder, you know, instead of conventional angiography, if this patient was resuscitating while well, CT angiography in the night could have been done to try to find the bleeding mm -hmm. yeah. source. But they, they won't take the patient down to CT if it's not stable. It's, it's, yeah, if it's, it's a real... It's, it's difficult. It's a sticky one. So I asked the question, now what, which we've already talked about a little bit, so we'll press forward. Um, but he actually undergoes a CT angiogram the next day when he's not bleeding anymore. And unsurprisingly, no source of bleeding is identified. So we've probably missed a window of opportunity to diagnose him. So at that point, everybody is quite disappointed um, because this is a gentleman who's been waiting on the ward and we're basically just waiting for an opportunity to image him again when he's actively bleeding. And who knows when that's gonna happen? Maybe you're gonna have to wait a year, two years, three years before he actually bleeds again because you can't admit him forever. So but while at this point, he's had several episodes, days apart, mm -hmm. you can't send him home at this point. You can't, but then also last time he bled for a few days when he was 18 years old, and a few days later he actually just stopped, and he actually stopped for four or five years. Right. We have some patients that have probably, <laughs> probably been around for a long time for, for worse reasons. So the next test that someone actually suggests to do is a tag nuclear RBC scan. I have a question. Yeah, uh, it, it used to be that sometimes we would try to provoke a bleed with heparin. Is that still a thing? You know, uh, I've, I've seen it in the past, in the distant past. I've always been uncomfortable with it. That's, that's I've never seen it here, but I did see it uh, back in my previous home. And did it work? Yeah. <laughs> and we're, how did it <laughs> I mean, work? it worked in the sense that people really bled. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and how did it, and you were prepared for that bleed? Yeah. Okay. So he undergoes a tagged RBC scan, and actually, fortunately, this shows evidence of blood pooling in the distal cecum. So what do you guys think about this result? Is it helpful? What would be your next step? I think the trouble with an RBC scan is it doesn't truly localize the source of the bleeding enough to actually act upon it directly. So now we have blood, basically, you know, distal cecum. We still don't know where it's coming from. We just know that's where it happens to stay. Right, so Dr. Boyd, does this rule out to you the diagnosis of Meckel's diverticulum? No. And the rationale being that all we know is that he's probably bleeding somewhere proximal to the cecum. Yeah. I think that that was also the concern that was raised by the treating team. So they wanted to call general surgery, which they did, but general surgery said, well, then what are we going to take out, the whole right side of the colon and the entire small bowel? Because we don't really have a location. All we know is that the left side of his, bowel, his colon is probably okay. So I ask again, what next? So what would you guys do when you saw this result that afternoon? So Dr. Voyer still hasn't gotten his Meckel scan. Anything anyone else would suggest? I have to admit that I probably wouldn't have done the red cell scan. Mm -hmm. um, I, just, I probably wouldn't have done it. So I, I don't know what I would have done next when I saw it because I wouldn't have been there. And he actually undergoes an urgent angiogram that afternoon. What they wondered if perhaps this pooling of blood was signs that there was still a very slow leak and maybe they'd be able to see it on the CT angiogram and then he could get definitive therapy with an embolization. So unfortunately, after undergoing the angiogram, he has no bleeding whatsoever. So humor me for a moment. When someone has intermittent angina, we can provoke them. 
we put them on a treadmill and we get them to run and see if their symptoms come back and if their ECG changes. So my question for all of you is, someone, if someone has intermittent GI bleeding, can we also provoke? And Dr. Voyer has alluded to this without being aware of the case. And we suggest that you don't consider doing this at home, but maybe you can consider doing this in a tertiary care center. So the radiologist's next step actually is to poke the bear. He decides to administer 3,000 units, so a full loading dose of heparin, intra-arterially, and then he repeats the angiogram. Okay. I mean, this is a, like, so just in my limited experience, like, really, the surgeon should be aware that this is going on. Like, if you're going to do this, all the, the critical care unit should be aware that this is happening. Because you might be about to witness, like, a catastrophic bleed. There should be, the patient should be cross-matched for eight units of blood, the whole thing. So there are some services that are aware. The surgery service is aware of this. Okay. I don't think at this point the intensive care unit is aware. They're about to be. So actually no bleed is identified. Oh. And after okay. giving thanks that nothing bad has happened, what would you guys do next in this situation? I think Dr. Boye's position um, is what we should have done next, what we would do next but should have done first, and that's making all the services aware mm -hmm. of whatever we're doing. So the radiologist wasn't satisfied with that provocation. <laughs> so, and so what time of day is it? It's about four in the afternoon. Of course it is. He poked so, some more. So what he decided to do is poke some more. He actually decided to inject two milligrams of intra-arterial TPA. We have a lot of surprise faces in the room. And so this seems a bit crazy. But what does the literature actually say about giving TPA to patients who are having intermittent GI bleed? So this is actually technically termed as a diagnosis, gastrointestinal hemorrhage of obscure origin. And there's a paper in the year 2000 published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology that discusses the first set of patients who undergo provocative angiography with this history of GI bleeding, and it's by Bloomfeld et al. And they examined seven patients, all of whom had had a very large number of previous investigations but could never have their, their, their source of GI bleeding identified. And these patients actually under a similar procedure to what this patient just had. So they were given sometimes heparin, sometimes urokinase, as well as a vasodilator called tolazidine to try to get them to bleed. And what they found in this group actually was that two of the seven patients went on to receive a formal diagnosis as to where they were bleeding from and it changed their long-term management, mainly in the form of surgery. Five patients did not have a source identified and none of these patients had any severe consequence from this. Somewhat surprising. There's also two papers published in the Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology, one in 2001 by Mark Ryan et al., and one in 2010 by uh, uh, Kim et al., and they are further um, assessments as of this potential uh, uh, drug cocktail for the, for the diagnosis of, uh, of obscure GI bleeding. And in the 2010 paper, they performed 36 procedures and examined them retrospectively and actually identified extravasation in 31% of cases. And of the cases they identified extravasation, a definitive therapy was reached in 92% of cases. So their conclusion is that provocative angiography is actually helpful in about a third of cases, maybe a little bit less than that. And none of these patients had any severe side effect. There was also an abstract published in the same journal in 2014 by uh, Zerkia et al. And uh, this paper, as far as I can tell, has never led to a full publication, but they examined the same uh, technique in a prospective manner. So what are people's thoughts about this at this point? He's, so first of all, where's the catheter? He's getting this TPA injection where? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. The, the, we'll, we'll, I'll show you the, yeah, I'll show the report. I think it's actually 
they're 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 finding one of the mesenteric vessels that they think or the area that they think is being affected and injecting it right into that area. So they've got a catheter in his like femoral artery or something. I think so. And they're up somewhere fiddling around the aorta. Yeah, they're in the aorta in one of the probably the superior or the one of the mesenteric arteries. Okay. It seems a bit atypical. I certainly haven't seen TPA given to someone who's bleeding. But fortunately, this actually identifies a source of bleeding in his cecum. Mm-hmm. And so quite, uh, I think, thoughtfully, the radiologist actually uh, gave him a bunch of packed red blood cells before he actually um, uh, administered the TPA. And the findings suggest that uh, he has um, a bleed that is um, identified in the cecum, and they communicated this finding to the general surgery team. And that he actually tolerated the procedure quite well. A question here, Tzvet. Um, did they give any protamine to reverse the heparin that they gave him? Not to my knowledge. But this was the same day? Yes. Same procedure? Yes. It's within 15, 20 minutes of the heparin. So the general surgery team is consulted, and they plan to do an urgent OR that night, and he's transferred back to the ward. Mm. What? Why are you... Uh, you, you seem concerned. Uh, this guy's going to require like a fair amount of monitoring and blood work in the next couple hours. I think that's a fair assumption. None of this was actually directly communicated in great detail to the most responsible provider. The radiologist administered, I think, this on his own volition in the in the in discussion with the surgeon. And so there wasn't a lot of handover at this point. So it's 701 that night in the evening and I'm about to leave for the day. And overhead a code blue is called. Oh no. And I go straight to the ward where this patient is and he has had a massive GI bleed. There's actually blood all over his room. Um, and he's basically lost consciousness in his bed. Oh, no. He has a decreased level of consciousness. His initial blood pressure is about 40, and a massive transfusion protocol is initiated. He actually probably has a brief period of PEA arrest as well. So he is given about 20 units of blood product over a span of just 40 minutes, and the OR slate is urgently cleared, and he is brought to the OR by the general surgery team, the anesthesiologist, and the code team. He has an open laparotomy with a right hemicolectomy. They actually tried to scope the colon as they were um, opening it up surgically to try and find where the lesion was bleeding. And they actually cut out uh, segmental parts of it gradually and opened it up on the pathology table and actually looked through and they could never find what was actually bleeding. So they decided just to remove the entire cecum. What they were really afraid was that, was there a chance this wasn't coming from the cecum? So they would remove this area and he would go back up, get closed up and uh, bleed again. So what do you guys think the diagnosis is at this point, based on everything we know? What's the etiology? I think, as Dr. Kasson pointed out, this is a bleeding vessel into a viscous organ lumen. Um, we're not seeing, they probably, presumably they looked at the small bowel, they didn't see a meckles somewhere near the cecum, and we don't see anything intraluminally. So I think it's some kind of vascular bleed, vascular malformation that is small so that we can't see it, but it's probably there somewhere. So I think the differential diagnosis is pretty narrow at this point. It was felt as most like an AVM, which can actually be almost invisible when they're not bleeding. So he spends one night in the anesthesia recovery unit and is actually discharged from hospital two days later. He makes an, a miraculous recovery. He has no long-term sequelae. And now more than two years from this initial episode that I saw him, he has returned to school and he has absolutely um, uh, no long-term problems. He's never bled again. So I think we were all very grateful as to how well he did. Some of the themes from this case, I think one thing that's very important is this is a young guy who resuscitated very well. We probably underestimated how sick he was at first, and then certainly um, there could have been an improvement in the handover and the planning process around giving him a provocative angiogram, 
um, because he fortunately did very well, um, but there was a, a very high chance of a significant morbidity and probably a mortality from it. Um, and so I think we learned a lot from this case. But actually, you know, when you think about it, the provocative test did what it was supposed to do. The issue was that we weren't prepared for what it was supposed to do because each time we never did anything, he actually probably became hypotensive, stopped his bleed, and then we resuscitated him from that. It's just this time, he's, that's not the situation. We've actually prevented his natural history and created a new history for him. So we almost killed him making the diagnosis. And based on those, those studies, it looks like doing this, if this guy fits their population, roughly 33% chance that he will bleed. And we've seen even without provocation when he bleeds, it's quite significant, not necessarily leading to PA arrest, but now with TPA and heparin on board. So I think we could have planned much better, but this is a very child challenging diagnostic problem. We all very much agreed from the beginning that he most likely had a lower GI bleed, but it's, it's actually figuring out exactly where the lower GI bleed was that was the key to solving the case, because otherwise he's just going to have recurrent bleeding for the rest of his life. But I think part of this is the planning and the communication, because all of us are in this situation where when he looks well, he looks very well, and now you can envision the fact that the board is busy and someone says, well, why is he still here? And you're having to justify why he's still here and he's walking around, he's on his cell phone and can't you do this as an outpatient or can't you just send him back to his family physician? They can send the notes along. So, I mean, it takes a lot of uh, organization within the system and with and communication with the patient and their families about what we're trying to do and then be prepared. I mean, we actually had the expected result. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what this whole thing was came down to. I mean, how many times we do something when we say, this is what we'd like, well, this is what we've got. Mm-hmm. We just weren't prepared for what we got. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening.